Welcome to Session Zero, Episode 2, Character Creation. My name is Christian Shell, And I am Luke Stone. Episode 2, Character Creation. We're moving on now. We had an entire episode that hopefully will give everybody a sense of what it is like to sit down at a Session Zero with their dungeon master, their other party members, what it will be like to meet them, get introduced to the campaign, introduce possibly to the other characters if they've been created up until that point, get an idea maybe of what everybody wants to make. Now we want to move on to what it looks like in your own time, at home, creating the characters, mechanically going through and putting down what their attributes are onto a character sheet, what that looks like, how to run them what all of the different terms and numbers and rolling for stats and all that fun stuff looks like. There's a lot of helpful resources out there on the internet, like books, paper, a lot of things you can find. What we use to help us build our characters is called D&D Beyond. It is now owned, actually, by Wizards of the Coast, who are the owners of the Dungeons and Dragons title. And when we prepared for this episode, we really looked at those websites and going to create a character and just seeing what it is that you see as you go through that process and how we can help walk and guide through those steps, answering the questions that we first had when we got to each page. Looks currently looking at it right now. Yeah, I actually pulled it up, and I, as we're doing this, am going to be creating my own character on on the side here and and walking through that process. So hopefully, our conversation models what that looks like. Absolutely not the only way to do it. No, not at all. And everything that we're saying is not specific to using D and D Beyond. These are all things that you can use on any resource. It's just helping you gain the knowledge so that you don't have to ask the questions when you get there. Yeah, that is my preference, but I've definitely met many people that would just much rather put them down on, on pen and paper on a traditional character sheet and totally totally valid helps prevent uh wires and chargers spanning across yeah. the table and <laughs> only one person bringing an extension cord yeah also talking about no one set way we are starting with this as the character creation process but you can make characters top down right left whichever direction from whatever angle you want yeah so if you would prefer to skip the character sheet and all of the nitty-gritty definitions of what your character will be in-game and instead write their backstory and figure out where they came from and what it is that defines them as a personality and then turning around to come back and say, okay, what does this look like as a D&D character mechanically? Totally valid as well. If you're listening to it in this order, and this is the way that I have always built my characters, is mechanically building a character and being like, all right, what is this person going to be like? What's their personality? While those are two ways to do it, there's a lot of different ways of doing it from those different angles and what you do first, what you, you know, maybe you pick your racing class first and then you pick the backstory and then you build based off of that. Or you can just go straight from the beginning, having a personality and then building the mechanics. Yeah, even how we're going to go through it now, starting with race first, moving on to class. We mentioned in the last episode, right, you can just roll the numbers and say, what does this look like to me? And do it that way. So what do you mean by roll the numbers? Roll the ability scores. Roll the ability scores? Yeah, your ability score are your defining mechanical characteristics of every character. Ability scores are strength, dexterity, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. But we will get to those later. Yeah, and we will cover those more in depth when we get to that portion of our episode. And the different ways to get those scores and what they mean. I also want to bring something up. You brought up rolling for your character, start with rolling. Mm -hmm. There's also other resources you can use, including in the books and on D&D Beyond, in the the resource material and on D&D Beyond, 
fun where if you can't come up with literally anything, you can roll and it'll based on your role, it'll give you attributes of a personality so that you can then build a character from there. Yeah, you can go through different personality traits, different backgrounds. They have what are called ideals. But that was so, why I asked what you meant by rolling. Oh, yeah, yeah. They have different personality traits that you can roll on that are built into... I feel like some are generally attached to races and classes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have what would be commonplace for a rogue or what generally might fit into certain races or certain subclasses. So you can roll on those tables and get a, an idea to go off of from there. It'll guide you to what race generally, stereotypically, whatever, acts like that, even though it doesn't have to be played that way. Yep. So there's personality traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws are the big ones. And it gives you examples you can either choose from or you can just roll to randomly build one and then look at the, the conglomeration of all of those things together and say, what does this kind of person look like to me? Which is pretty cool. So you ready to talk about race? Yes, let's do it. So there's the more general, the more the simpler races out there, like humans, halflings, elves, gnomes. What we've referred to as the very Tolkien-esque. The Tolkien-esque, yeah. Building of races, yeah. And especially if you are doing this on D&D Beyond or you're looking at the player's handbook. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Yes, the player's handbook. Those are the generally going to be the ones that are in there. Uh, as you get different source material, they will add different races and that you can then, you can play as any of them, but those are the ones that are going to be in there that you're going to see if that's what you're looking at. Yeah, so races come in different sizes and they appearances. Different appearances. Some of them are humanoid. Some of them won't be. Some of them look like birds. Some of them look like elephants. Some of them look like machines. Some of them are tall. Some of them are short. Some of them are different colored skin. Those are some of the maybe less important aspects of them but it is cool to get an idea of i like the idea of looking like that i like trying to like looking at this has inspired me to find what i want to play as it depends too on the campaign setting that your DM has decided on. A lot of that can drive what you want your race to be as well. If they are running a campaign that is set in a specific area where certain races don't exist or certain are more common, can be another fun way to, if you've already got an idea of what you want in your head and it's a big, beefy Goliath character and then they happen to run a campaign in a mountainous, cold weather type thing, it would make very much sense for you to go and pick a an actual Goliath as that is where they're from those areas. Or if you had the idea that you wanted your character to be an outsider from the realm and say, I am going to play an Aarakocra, which is a bird person, because they are not common in the, in these areas. But now some of the more uh, mechanical aspects of races, races come with different abilities. So like the halfling has the ability where if they roll a one on any roll with a d20, they get to re-roll. Luck. They're not allowed to roll a one. They're little lucky guys. They are. They it, can also fit in the same space as another character as long as they are less the size because they're little, they're short. Yeah. Yep. Halflings are little guys. They also are naturally stealthy. They're dexterous. They automatically get a plus two to dexterity, which we'll touch more on what that is later. But like I just said, they're they're nimble, little, dexterous yeah, guys. Each, each race or actually girls. has... Or thems. <laughs> generally, each race actually has their own racial bonuses to those, those main scores that we had talked about. And that's just an example of one with the halfling. You can easily find all of that under 
the race descriptions in the books on the websites. Yeah, your race will affect your character in a couple of different ways. They give you different abilities. Aside from just the actual bonuses to those scores, there are some races that award you spells that you can cast based on where those races come from. Uh, the Genasi are a good example. They they derive power from elemental planes, and so they've got... The Air Genasi has some, some levitate and some lightning abilities. The Fire Genasi is going to have uh, some flame abilities, stuff like that. The the elves, generally speaking, do not have to sleep. <laughs> they have to put themselves into a deep trance for about four hours. Certain races will have what's called dark vision, the ability to see in dim light and shades of gray, as opposed to being totally blinded by darkness. Things like that. The Goliath that was mentioned earlier has a particular endurance to taking damage and isn't affected by cold, as they're used to being mountain-born, mountainous creatures from, from cold weather areas. Another thing that might be important important is uh, asking your DM, as Luke brought up earlier, what universe you're running in. And, and for an example of, is it a Tolkien-esque environment? What are the relationships between different races? Because like in the Lord of the Rings, elves and dwarves don't get along. Orcs and elves hate each other. Men are looked down on, you know? When, when we say Tolkien-esque, we're talking about dwarf, human, elf, good, orc, goblin, bad. Yeah. But we're playing a game in the world of Exandria where all of those lines are blurred and it's acceptable to see any number of these races in any place. But still within that, there's a specific continent that we're on where there are some racial tensions around that. So while these these creatures are still more prevalent, there is still that aspect of what's good, what's bad, depending on where you are and what are the relationships that are held between them. So that is definitely something that's good to, to ask your DM about to give you a good direction to go in. Along with which races make sense for this world, but also what are those races' roles in this world? Yeah, where they fit into society. So we can actually move on, I think, to classes. Race is a good aspect of what you want your character to be like. Class is definitely going to be more how do you want your character to work. Yeah. Race can help that because we mentioned they have those particular abilities, but there's also just human Human doesn't have any particular abilities that go and shine, and they don't have the you can sleep less or don't have to sleep, or you mm -hmm. can use a fey teleport every now and again. It's just kind of just bog standard. My uh, my first D&D &D character was a human, and they yeah. get plus one to all of their ability scores. Yeah, it bounces out a little bit. Yeah. So classes, and I don't love this analogy, but I can't think of a better one, to be honest. You think of your class as your vocation or your occupation. Yeah. It is fundamentally what you do. I think the first thing we should start with is there's really two categories. It's more of a spectrum, but there's, there's the two ends of the spectrum are magic users yep. and non-magic slash melee users. Yes. And we're going to generally be talking about the classes in order of magic users to non-magic users. Broadly as Broad well. Broadly, yeah. Not going to go super in-depth into each of them, no. and we'll talk about what subclasses are in a little bit as well, but a general overview of what these classes do functionally so that you can have an idea, and then everything that we talk about in this one, and I mean literally everything, while we can explain it to the best of our ability, is going to have to be, okay, I think I kind of like how that sounds. I'm going to go read about it. Yeah, because there is we could make four or five episodes on every aspect of what we're talking about today. Yeah, I think another important thing that we're going to touch on is how did these classes become get their powers, get their abilities? You know, what is their more what personality generally comes with these things and how do they get it so that you have to 
write that into your backstory. You have to take that into consideration. And then thoroughly enjoy when we hear about how people heard what personality types generally come from these classes and went, no, <laughs> and did yeah. something totally different. And yeah. that is a lot of fun. It, it yeah. is very fun to try and b- break those boundaries or whatever, you know. Those stereotypes. Yeah. 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 yeah, it is. First up, let's talk about our arcane magic users and how all of them are so similar and yet so different. <laughs> well, first we should probably explain what a m- magic user and a melee user are, generally speaking. Um, it's yeah. pretty self-explanatory, but... Pretty simple, but you can imagine, do you want to be someone who is using magic abilities, or do you want to be someone who use weapon hit hard? <laughs> yeah. I think it's also kind of important to note that magic users, the spells that you're going to be using, there's some spells that are combat-based spells. Yeah, oh, absolutely. They're, they are to injure enemies or friends, depending on how you play. <laughs> and there's also going to be spells that are like a hand, mage hand, that just kind of like wanders around and can pick things up. Yeah, do different types more of utility stuff, yeah. Whereas melee users are just really good with weapons, and then they're going to come more into the, the role-playing of I'm good at moving things and lifting things, that kind of thing. More dexterous, I, I'm able to run across this wall, or I'm able to do this better than, say, other people. Yeah, but there's easy ways to blend a lot of those together. There to, are. To blur those yeah. lines, for sure, and we'll, we'll go over that, too, at the end. So, generally speaking, your magic users are going to fall into a camp of what type of magic that they use. So we have arcane magic users, which would be our sorcerers, our warlocks, and our wizards. Starting off with the sorcerer, the sorcerer is not great at combat. They're not wonderful at it. They can be made to do so. Melee combat specifically. Melee combat, yes, correct. But I think the most important thing is that they got their magic innately. It came from their bloodline or some form of, you know, it'll make more sense when we get to the other ones, but they just kind of already had their magic. Yeah, the player's handbook describes it as a supernatural or genetic tap into what is the stream of arcane magic in the world, as opposed to the warlock. Very plainly, the warlock either strikes a deal or is gifted their magical ability by an otherworldly being or a patron, whether it be a a lesser idol, a demon, an alien, not gods, because we'll get to what is divine magic. We're not quite there yet. The yeah. warlocks are, not to use the, the analogy of soldier soul to the devil, but I mean, that's kind of where we're going here, right? Made a yeah. pact with some other being that says, yes, here you are, gifted this magical ability of mine, some portion of it, and go off and do my bidding. And depending on the campaign and the DM and how you play it, you might get stuck having to do services for this person, or at least describing past services you mm-hmm. have done for this higher being and how you got your power and how you keep it. Not always good or bad. Not always good or bad. I think generally a lot of them tend to be evil yeah. patrons because those are just fun to play. Warlocks in general are very fun to play. But very useful both as, as a magic user, but this is a great example of some of them that warlocks can be very good at, at melee combat as well with some of their subclasses. They can be built to be frontline fighters. They just happen to use their magic hand-in-hand with their melee combat and there's what we call a, a half-caster, which we'll get to. The final big arcane magic user is going to be your wizard. Wizards. Nerds. <laughs> Yes, nerds. <laughs> Wizards got their powers from being educated on it. They learned how they to studied. use it. Yep. They studied it. And a lot of wizards, or if not all, do all wizards have to have a book? Yes. Yeah. I, I believe all of them. It's totally possible that we're, we're wrong here. But the the warlocks and the sorcerers, they have their number of spells as you level up here, the spells that you know. And the wizards have them written down in a spell book. Yeah. All of our magic users 
and the functionality of, of how you're casting spells, you do so with spell slots. So as you level up, you get a certain number of spells at a certain level that you can cast per day. But all of these magic users differ fundamentally in what spells they have access to. Some of them you choose. These are the ones that I learn every time I level up or whenever I have the opportunity to learn a new spell. Some of them, like a wizard, for instance, prepare their spells. So as they go into the day, here we are. I picked this morning when I woke up. Here are the ones that I'm, I'm looking at in my spellbook today. These are the ones that I can cast for the day. So while some of them may seem very similar, they will differ in their functionality and, and how they're played. And so it's a lot of fun to go in and to take other aspects of what you want your character to be. Some stuff either that maybe has to do with your race and what subclasses or, sorry, excuse me, what classes are popular within those races or commonplace within those races or what part of your backstory makes more sense for you to be this type of magic user. I think it's also interesting for something to play with, particularly with Wizard, this aspect of having to have a book. You could try and find a way to have something else that you keep your spells in. Maybe you're playing as a teenager and you keep it all on your smartphone and you have to have your phone on you and you're useless without your phone. That could be a fun thing to play as. That is kind of funny. So it's just an interesting, you know, these some of these aspects, you don't have to think of a wizard as the guy with the blue hat with stars and the moon on it. Oh, yeah. You can you can play it however you want at the expense of the DM approving it. I, I like actually that I think you're pulling in an example that we talked about of something that you want to run here soon yeah. where kids are high school students and I said, I have been dying to play a wizard so i get to play a bookworm kind of a nerdy character that gets to be a wizard i'm using that smartphone bit now by no the way. go for it i think that's hilarious <laughs> that'll be that'll be fun i never i'd never thought about that and it would be a fun joke to play of i'm always looking at my phone like fuck i don't have my phone i'm useless <laughs> yeah, you know that's, that's fun that's cool moving on to some of our non-arcane magic users and maybe this next one could be argued to to be some a, of them a touch bit. on arcane but those are the big three arcane magic yeah users. and then the these sh- are kind of blurred yeah where their their definitions are, but everybody's favorite class, I'm just going to throw it out there, Yeah, <laughs> is the bard. No, not always, but it's kind of known to be the beloved, both loved, and the pinnacle of a love-hate relationship with a class yeah. is the bard, the jack of all trades. The bard is typically a musician. Typically. In most cases that you'll see, it is it is musical in the way that they, they use their magic, but it can be any form of spoken word, audible performance, stand-up comics we like to talk about as yeah. being something that would be very fun to explore as a bard. In the uh, in the Dungeons and Daddies podcast that we've I believe we've mentioned yeah, before. Last episode, yeah. The uh, the bard uses dad jokes. Yeah. He uses ma- dad jokes. Yeah. To cast his spells. Which is funny because he his character canonically is a musician. <laughs> yeah. And will sometimes sing a little ditty and inspire the group. But yeah, usually it's if he is inflicting harm on another person via bard magic, he's doing so by telling them a terrible dad joke. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Which is an interesting way to look at it, you know, and we brought up music stand up you i mean i'm sure you could do like dance or something there's different yeah. there's a lot of different ways just a lot of it is performance yeah, it's very performance based this class is generally considered to be more of a support utility character absolutely but again there are subclasses among all of these that can that can change up that role that you can kind of customize to be your own speaking of the cleric what everybody would love to think of is pigeonholed into being a healer support class, but my goodness, can some of those subclasses do a whole lot of damage. Oh, yeah. Shout out Tempest Cleric, man. Those things are awesome. This is going to be our first example of a divine magic user. So while we have our arcane magic users that get their powers from a number of different 
sources, the divine magic users very clearly get their powers from a deity. Now, this is another wonderful time to touch on the fact that you can play the game any way that you'd like to, skin the game to be whatever it is that you want it to look like. So if you're looking at a cleric, you say, I really like these powers. I don't really care about the pantheons and I don't want to do a religious something, whatever. Cool, just make it something different. But as far as the, you know, the canon in the text, you pick a god. You pick a god that you worship that provides you with your power. That is that is the trade-off. And uh, again, back to whatever universe you're playing in, you can always ask the DM too, like, are there gods in this universe, in this campaign that I can pick from? Or can I just, you know, make it, you kind of have to, but like make up my own, bring up my own thing, you know? Yep. Your own deity, your own, and finding those ways to, that can also really help you fit into the universe if there are already gods within I, that universe. Yeah, I actually just went through and helped a cleric build their subclass and pick their deity, and that was how I had the conversation with him, where he said, I'm kind of unsure, I just know I want to try out a cleric, I've never played one before, I'm not super familiar with the pantheon of the world, I don't know how the god structure and worship and, you know, churches, temples, whatever works here. So I asked him, I said, okay, what are what are the ideals of your character? What are the important aspects of your personality and he listed off his empathetic nature etc etc and I kind of picked one for him I said cool I you know lobbed a couple of options at him and I said here's kind of what would fit and I read off there's great resources in the books that describe the deities that will give you kind of bullet points be like here are the ideals here are the main points of this god so I just read him those I didn't tell him what they were I didn't tell him you know, a whole lot of detail about the gods. I was just like, here, I'm going to read these three things and then I'm going to read three more and you tell me first set or second set what makes more sense. And it was fun. Our next class is going to be druids. Druids also use divine magic, but of a different sort. Their magic is derived from the natural world. They're taking the magic in the essence of nature or elements or the sky, you know, just different aspects of nature, and they pull that in to use magic. Now, their magic can be many different things. It is generally controlling the weather, controlling different elements, controlling plants. They can turn into animals. There are several elements, though, that are classified under, you know, air quotes nature that aren't your typical water, wood, leaves kind of thing. Uh, There's a a circle of stars druid that has a lot of astronomy-based fun stuff. Circle of the moon, I think. Um, There's circle of spores, right? You wouldn't think of, you know, but what's one element of nature? Fungus. Yeah. Right? There's some kind of fun stuff that you can do. You want to take Artificer? You probably talked the most and researched the most about it. Yeah, Artificers are... Moving away again a little bit from the divine magic realm, artificers are another cool, I think, kind of hybrid, similar to the bard in that they're very defined in how they use their magic, but not so much in the where they get it from. Artificers are like your your mad scientist role. They use technically arcane magic, but they imbue items with those magical properties or they're good at picking up objects or tinkering with them tinkering with them but also being able to tell if there is magic imbued in them already yeah the main function of an artificer is object focus and less focused on the casting of a spell or the performing of a ritual so it even says where they're explained that if you want your magic if you're using a, a healing word instead of this divine bright whatever you know your stereotypical magic look like if you want your spell to look like you throw in a bunch of leaves and muddling them up into some healing salve and wiping it on somebody's arm that then kind of glows a little bit and suddenly ah oh, look this gash and my arm is gone you can do it that way it can be flavored to look like however you want it to yeah moving on to the next class which is the monk now we are into our Melee classes. Well, 
Monk still has a little tiny bit of little bit, little bit of magic, but we are really getting into more of the combat melee classes. Uh, the monk is a martial artist who primarily uses unarmed combat. They uh, use magic in the form of key. They are able to take that energy within them and make their hand strikes or feet strikes or whatever strikes with their body be more powerful and have more effect. Martial artists. Martial artists, yes. More than anything else, yes. And they use that key. Functionally, they spend key points to use some of that magical enhancement on particular strikes or change the way that their blows land, yeah. Moving to another stereotypical worshiper or god magic type, the paladin. These are holy knights that use divine magic, whether it be in the form of more powerful imbued strikes with their melee weapons or casting spells that are provided to them by a deity through an oath. So they take an oath to defend against evil or protect certain values or moral guidelines and are blessed by deities in a similar way that clerics are that enhance their abilities. They are oftentimes kind of your frontline tank character. Think dual-handed weapons, great swords, heavy clubs, mauls, stuff like that. Moving on to Rangers, which is currently the character that I am playing in the cam- in the, the campaign Luke is running. Rangers are very skilled woodsmen or whatever terrain they choose, but most people think of woods. They're very they're very good on the terrain. They're very good at tracking creatures. They're very uh, good hunters. They're archers. Archers. They're very good at archery. They can also be very good with hand weapons like swords and stuff like that. But they are very dexterous. They're very quick. They're very good at traversing terrains, particularly the one that is their primary terrain. They pick a preferred, yep, a preferred terrain. And you gain other terrains as you level up. But that also gives your party advantage in moving in rough terrains in your primary terrain. I think rangers are a lot of fun. Uh, Honestly, the reason I was drawn to them was because of Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, because he is a ranger. But they're also kind of generally recluses. They're kind of quiet. They're, uh, you know, they're not people's persons. They like being in nature and just, like, walking through the woods or through the desert or wherever. Recluses. Definitely a good place to jump to our next one, which is a rogue. Yeah. Your stereotypical shady, hooded, cloaked figure. Um, your thief type that's wandering through dark alleyways and within a shady network of criminal underground components. They are your your moody boy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Rogues are going to be your stealth characters. They rely on their dexterousness. They're quick. They're stealthy. They have a sneak attack function so they can capitalize on a flanking position from their allies to do extra damage they are meant to be hard to hit and even harder to see they're they're swift killers the fighter is definitely going to be the most versatile of all of the classes via their subclasses and what you can then spec them to do in later generally speaking they're the most useful for getting in the most number of hits in a round of combat So you can then spec them out to do very specific types of combat. They don't have to be the front man. There is one that is specific to ranged weapons. They can be kind of the pinnacle of a half-caster as well, which is the Eldritch Knight that is all about imbuing magic into their fighting style and giving them more to play on on the battlefield. 
Oftentimes they're going to rely on tactics and strategy and use their training and their backgrounds to enhance their skills to be an asset in combat in fights for the rest of their party. Still not as much of an asset, though, in combat in particular as Barbarian. So Barbarian is going to be your tank. Big damage dealer. Big damage dealer. Generally can take hits, can just absolutely knock someone out of the park in one blow. Big ol' hit point sponge. Uses, again, those big giant weapons, those great axes, great swords, clubs, stuff like that. They are going to be the giant or goliath that is with your party and looks dumb next to a ranger or a wizard. And it's just like, who's this big dumb motherfucker? But they rage as well as rage. their main, their main is, functionality. That is their biggest ability is their rage function. Definitely their most important ability, which allows them to deal significant more damage as well as take less. Yes. They get some resistance. Resistance means you take half damage from the certain type of damage in which is being dealt to you. So anything sharp or pointy, all of that piercing or slashing kind of damage, bludgeoning as well, that is done to a barbarian while they are raging is cut in half. So very, very useful in, in combat scenarios for sure. Yes. So we touched a little bit on spell casting already and kind of the general overview, but I do want to talk about that a little bit more and break it down. I there, mentioned... Go there, ahead. Are, there are some pretty hard rules to spell yeah. casting. Yeah, there's there's an entire section that you have to click out of if you're in D&D Beyond or a different <laughs> big old section in the book you've got to flip to that is specific just to the functionality of spellcasting. And then there are different ways, as we've mentioned before, that each class accesses that uh, and with different spell lists and the ways that they cast them and all of that. I mentioned before the spell slots. So that can be something that's kind of daunting getting started. And my biggest advice getting started is if you're wanting to play a spellcaster, don't be intimidated. Just do it. Just do it and figure it out. A lot of people are like, I'm just going to play a fighter because it seems simple and I just step up and hit stuff. They're all simple enough once you get to get to learning them and fighters can be just as complex as you want to make them as well. But in particular with the spell slots, I'd say pick the spells that you think make sense for you and that you can, uh, that your, your class and your level allows you to, and then just figure it out later. Spell slots are essentially how much spell energy you've got in you in a day it's mechanically what the maximum number of things that you are allowed to cast the maximum number of magical ability that you can use in any given day or period of time in between a rest so even if you have access to say six first level spells at any given time you may only have the ability to cast three spells at first level and then you would have to regain that ability by taking a long rest or sleeping or whatever it is functionality wise your class allows you to do that also as you level up you gain more spell slots and with that you gain those new spells that you can put into those added slots can be and usually are more powerful if you oftentimes oftentimes uh you know, I think, for example, some healing spells, it might be, oh, roll a D8, and then that plus this equals how much you actually healed. Well, if you put in a second level, it might say it roll two D8s. Yep. Yeah. Roll two D8s plus whatever modifier, and that's how much you healed. So they become more powerful in higher slots. So there is also the fun of picking which spells you put in those higher slots. Yes, and you can also... You can always cast a spell at a higher level slot. So if you are out of first level slots, spell slots, it doesn't mean you can't cast a first level spell again. It just means you would have to spend a different slot yeah. and then take away your ability during that time to cast possibly a more powerful spell at second, third, whatever level because you were using that slot for a lower level spell. So it is not super hard to understand. It is pretty easy to break down. If you want to play a spellcaster, I would definitely recommend going in and 
reading the entire section that it provides for you when creating a character about that because it does explain it in a pretty digestible way and then just asking other party members if they played a spellcaster or your dm or whatever sit down and, and get used to that there are different types of spells as well another large component of spell casting is concentration spells so understanding whether or not a spell is just cast and then takes effect and goes on about its merry way with nothing to do with you, or if you have to hold on to the effect. If you do have to cast a spell and then hold your concentration in order to keep its effect alive, knowing that you can only do that for one concentration spell at a time, and what are the things that maybe can break your concentration as well is good stuff to look at. There are also components of different spells as well. Verbal spells, you have to say something. You have, and it might not... It, I don't think it ever is something specifically that you have to say. You don't have to say the magic words. Right. You can sk- you can you work have... up whatever it, your magic words are. But yes, it, that does have to be a verbal component to it. Somatic is movement or hand-based. So there has to be a physical component to it, which these are important because it determines whether or not you can cast the spells while you're bound and gagged, right? If yeah. you have to speak, if you have to do something verbal in, t- in order to cast the spell and you've been captured and you're gagged up and you can't talk or you're underwater per se, right? Um, somatic, if you don't have, if you if your, if your hands are full, as simple as that, right? If you can't make the hand motion because you're carrying stuff or yeah, if you're if you're handcuffed, if you're, if you're bound up and then material, where this really comes into is if you need actual physical components small feathers, whatever they may be, to cast the spell if you actually have that on you, or do you need to go off to another shop to buy the thing that you need in order to cast those in the future? Which material was actually very um, intimidating to me, because my first character was a spellcaster for the most part. When you pick your equipment, your starting equipment, which we'll get to later, one of the things that you can get as a spellcaster is basically a kit where you don't need material you can ignore the materials needed yeah there's also component pouches too that you can buy that just have an assortment of what you might need and the dm would say yes you have a component pouch that includes you know 10 of these things that half your spells need and 100 of these things and yeah the stuff that you need to cast the spells there's ways to get around it without constantly having to walk around being like i pick wildflowers (laughs) oh no i need to catch a bird to pull its feather (laughs) unless unless that's how you want to play it and you and your dm talk about that yeah kind of fun we've mentioned half caster a couple of times we should probably explain what exactly that means yeah A half-caster is functionally a spellcaster and melee combat character wrapped up into one. So you're not going to be as powerful a melee combatant as someone who is a full fighter or full barbarian or whatever it is, and not as powerful on a spellcasting basis as someone who is going to play a full wizard or a full sorcerer or whatever it is. But is a half-caster would be somebody either multi-classed, so something that you can do throughout the game is, as you level up, decide if you have the correct prerequisites for it, you can take additional levels in a different class. So say if you make a fighter that's four levels in and at level five, you decide you want to have some healing roles as well. You can take a level in cleric or say paladin, something like that. So a half caster is either done that way or specific to, as I mentioned before with the fighter, that eldritch knight is made to give fighters magical capability so it's something that does a little bit of both has a hand in in both playing fields i think there's one more thing we should touch on with spells is cantrips yeah cantrips are spells that don't cost spell slots that's pretty much it yeah it's simple as that (laughs) yeah i just i I didn't want to go through this without (laughs) mentioning that you know yeah those are ones that there have much smaller effects like a a little flame in your hand that provides a little bit of light um that aren't you know large detrimental spells that affect the environment in big ways, but they you can just cast them and cast them and cast them. So uh, we touched on this quite a bit, mentioned it at least while we were describing all the classes, and that mm. is subclasses. Yep. 
We're not going to go through and list every subclass because Goodness. we would be here for like a day. <laughs> it would be insane. Or seven. So we're just going to touch on some of the ones. I know earlier you mentioned Tempest Cleric. Do yes. you want to elaborate on that one? Yeah, Tempest Cleric is one that I'd mentioned. I think I said specifically not a healer. It can be, but it's all about storm magic, lightning and thunder and destruction. And they get their powers from oftentimes more destructive and kind of evil gods. But yeah, so it's it's about skinning a specific character the way that you want it to look or you want it to function mechanically. So the ranger that you're playing. Yeah, the gloom stalker. Yeah, is all about being shifty and comfortable in dark places, whereas there's some there's a ranger subclass that talks about stepping in between worlds, the plane walker. Yeah. They they defend the boundaries of the different planes of existence and step in between these realms. There's all kinds of different ways. And that to in my opinion is the most fun part of playing a character once you get the general outlines of how you would like your character to function or the personality you want your character to have, then to go in and be like, okay, so what have I done as my character for the last six years that's mm -hmm. made me an Eldritch Knight, that's made me a life cleric? I think another important thing to mention about subclasses is that for most classes, you're going to get them at level three. Yes. And for some, you're going to get them at level two. So if you are starting at level one, you are not going to have a subclass yet. You can have one in mind and kind of guide your way towards that. Or you can just wait until you get there and figure it out. Yeah, that's a great way to just start at level one and slowly get into your character and, and figure out what it is that you want them to be. If you started off with a subclass, it can be more daunting, but oftentimes you will have games that just want to get that out of the way and have you start at level three or level five. Subclasses also provide you with more abilities the further you level up. Yeah. So your class will do that naturally, but your subclass also gives very subclass-specific abilities at, I think it's three, you get it, and then it's like five and five, seven, 13, something like that. Something like that. Five, seven, 11, maybe. I think the most important thing, since we aren't going totally in-depth about every single subclass ever, the important thing to understand is that if you're not in love with one aspect of a class, there's going to be a subclass that lets you change it up and play yeah. it how you might want to. I yep. mean, we've already talked about a lot about the ranger with the gloom uh, stalker, who's very comfortable in dark places, very shifty. There's also the plane walker who like, can travel between worlds. Probably the most generic, like I think the first subclass that ranger got in fifth edition was the Beastmaster, which oh, yeah. which you basically just have a beast companion. Yeah. You know, there's a wide range that covers all of these things. Like I think a lot of those first three magic users we talked about, the sorcerer, the warlock, the wizard, it's really just what kind of mute magic you use. You know, maybe it guides your personality a little bit, but a lot of it is just like what kind of magic, what aspect of magical spells do you like and which ones do you want to pick out and really focus on using those and get better at them by picking this subclass. Or combat function. Or picking up well. combat functionality, yeah. The first character that I played was an Echo Knight fighter from one of the Critical Role Source books that essentially just gives you another chess piece on, on the board. I had what was a double of my character that I could activate and move independently of myself within 30 feet, and I could then attack from either position throughout my turns. So it just gave, just gave me more combat functionality. While we have mentioned that there's a lot of different subclasses, it is very easy to look at. The information is laid out very well 
well for you, especially on D&D Beyond. If you go to, I think it's the information tab and then click on the class, you can just scroll down to subclasses and it gives you a very small brief. You know, this is kind of the story of this subclass, but then here's the abilities that you get at different levels and the things that you gain. It's very easy to look at. I think we talked a lot in the first episode that we're not going to read you the source material. We're going to help you understand and find and search through the source material. And, and subclass is going to be one of those big ones where yep. you can just go and it will be very easy to read. Yeah, and they lead you through it step by step, what yeah. you get at each level and how it affects your character for sure. Let's transition to the main building blocks of your character, those ability scores that we mentioned at the very top and then have not stopped mentioning throughout. Yeah, so I don't know about you, but I one of the first things that I looked up when wanting to get into D&D was character sheets. Yeah. So if you've ever looked at a character sheet or you already know what a character sheet is or you're looking it up right now. Oh, goodness. It is the six numbers that are probably at the top of the page in the big boxes the yeah. bi- or the big boxes that are meant to hold them. Yeah, the empty big boxes yes. that you've got to fill with those numbers. Yeah, so they are easily separated into three. They're easily separated in half. Strength, dexterity, and constitution are all going to be more physical attributes about your character. Constitution is your hardiness. I give people the example of being able to hold your stomach, right? Not vomit, whether it be from a horrid sight or smell or al- alcohol or poison. It also directly influences your maximum number of hit points functionally whenever you're creating your character. Strength and dexterity are pretty obvious ones. Dex is going to be how quickly you can move and strength is how strong you are. Dexterity does tie in directly to your armor class. Your armor class is how hard you are to hit. So two things that will primarily influence this are going to be your dexterity as well as the armor that you are wearing and what that bonus gives to your armor class. So we've talked before about combat and the functionality of how it works. Whenever you are going to try and hit someone with either a melee effect or a spell, oftentimes there are some spells that are different and some abilities that are different that require saving throws instead. But oftentimes you are going to roll a d20 against that person's AC. So if I am going to target Christian's character with a hit from my sword... What I'm going to do is swing that sword, roll a d20, and then if my d20 roll plus my modifier for the sword beats his AC, which is directly affected by, again, that armor and dexterity mod, then I get to hit him. And then you roll the damage based on how good you are with it, what level you are, etc. So strength and dexterity will also tie directly into the weapons that you are using. Your strength mod or your dexterity mod, the modifier that is derived from the total number of the score, is going to be added to that roll whenever you try and hit with a weapon. So it's how good you are. And based on certain types of weapons, if they're going to be strong, big, two-handed stuff, they're probably going to be the strength modifier that is applied to that roll, whereas ranged or finesse weapons, as they're referred to, are going to add that dexterity modifier. All of that will be explained when you build your character and how that all rolls into mechanically how they function, but that's the easiest way to separate the three of those. And the other three largely have to do with your spellcasters, but also directly affect most of what are the skills that are listed in the center of that character sheet page. So 
Intelligence, wisdom, and charisma are pretty self-explanatory. Wisdom is going to be how wise you are, and intelligence is going to be how intelligent you are. But these are going to be either the modifiers that you use when casting spells, depending on your class, the same way that a finesse weapon when fighting will use a dexterity modifier, and a big two-handed weapon, generally speaking, will use a strength modifier. When you're casting spells, depending on your class, you will use one of the modifiers from intelligence, wisdom, or charisma. They also affect the skills, Skills are primarily what the DM is going to have you roll when you want to try and do something. Like, if you're trying to lift a heavy boulder or you're trying to do some weird, crazy running thing, they might not necessarily strictly ask for strength or dexterity. They might ask for acrobatics or athletics, those kinds of things, which are different skills. And all of these down the center of the page are derived from one of the larger numbers up top. Down the center of the page if you're looking at a character sheet. Yes, yes. So you'd mentioned strength and dex being athletics and acrobatics. Some of the other examples in here are investigation versus insight. So the difference there might be that you are looking for something physically amiss in a room, and that would be investigation, which uses intelligence, versus insight, which is trying to surmise someone's intentions or their demeanor by watching the way that they're acting, which is wisdom. So these things kind of stack up in a very customizable way, so you can you can be better at certain things and have some some faults in your character in certain areas that you just don't think that they would be good at. And you can go through and pick and choose also which of these things you would like to be proficient in. Well, now you got to say what proficiency (laughs) is. So proficiency is a bonus that increases over time with the level of your character. And it is essentially the things that you are picking and choosing to be particularly good at. So you get to add an extra little plus two, plus three, plus four, whatever it is, to your athletics ability. Because growing up as a child, you played sports. Or you get to be proficient in medicine because your mother or neighbor was a healer and you spent a lot of time practicing medicine with them for the folks in the town. And while your base skill value is going to be based, is going to derive from those ability scores, proficiency is a good way that you are you can be able to boost the ones that are already high or try and pick up some of the ones that are maybe not. Exactly. If you have a character that is not charismatic at all and you've got a score of seven in that charisma box and it equals a minus two modifier, which we will explain in a moment how you get those numbers. But say you've got a charisma of seven and it gives you a minus two modifier and it is actually very important to your character and your backstory that you are good at deceiving people, that you grew up a liar, right? Deception is a charisma-derived skill. So you can choose to be proficient in that deception category, which will then give you, if you have a proficiency bonus of plus three and a charisma modifier of minus two, then you have actually a plus one in deception and you have that that leg up whenever you have to roll those checks which as you do so more or as you play the game and level up your character will actually increase so how do we get those scores up top there's several different ways to get those scores up top and some of the more standard ones are standard array point by and rolling for them touch on those and then i'm going to talk about my bastardized way that i like to have fun and throw all of those out of the window (laughs) so standard array is basically there is a set of numbers that range from a higher number, like up to like 16, 17, something like, like that. Like 12 to 16, yeah. Yeah, and then down to like maybe lowest like six or something. They're usually set by the DM. There are some listed in the player's handbook, but basically the DM is going to give you six numbers that range anywhere between 20 and like one, where they get to choose. And 20 is very high and one is very low. Um, And you basically just get to pick which 
ability scores, which abilities you want those scores to be for. Point by sets everyone, sets all of your abilities at a base, what, eight? D&D Beyond has the total number of spendable points at 27. But everything starts down at eight on D&D Beyond. Yeah, I think so, eight. And then they have you a get... total of 27 points that you can allocate to put into other places, yeah. So with point by, all of your ability scores are going to have a base number, which on D&D Beyond it is eight, I believe. I think so. And then you get 27 additional points that you then get to spend to raise them. So you could add a bunch into one and like get it up to like an 18 or a 16 or a 17. I don't but when know. When you do that, yeah, you do so but at then, the cost of lo- keeping another ability lower. Correct. Yeah. So it's it's really trying to even them out, which I think it's important. It's not a rule by any means. You should be bad at something. Yeah, uh, we've talked a little bit about that here recently. I do I do believe so as well. Which we meant we kind of mentioned earlier with your dump stat, you know. I think it's important to have a dump stat. A dump stat really rounds a character out. I had a problem when I'd made my first character that I was just kind of decently okay at everything. There were a couple of things where I had some, some plus twos and some plus threes and maybe a plus four here or there. But just about everything that I rolled for was like, yeah, I might do it, I might not. You could flip a coin. Yeah. Right? It was plus zero, plus one. And it's not really fun if... If you don't fail. Right. If and you don't try and do something you're bad at to be funny or just because you have to, that could be, you know, it's an interesting thing. Because really what you're doing is you're telling a story and no one likes a story where everything happens in the way of the character. You yes. Know? And I think particularly important when playing a character and maybe even more so for those who struggle to really get into their character's personality and making decisions is that if you are good at things and you have a higher modifier, a higher number in particular skills or abilities, you're going to lean more on those skills and abilities when you need to complete tasks or overcome obstacles. So instead of trying to be sneaky and slink through dark alleyways and shadows, if you're not stealthy, but you're very acrobatic, then you might rely more on saying, hey, I want to jump off of this windowsill, kick off of the brick wall, grab onto this pipe, swing myself onto the roof, and now I'm going to be sneaky because I'm out of everybody's eyeline and I'm up on top of these buildings. It gives you more of a way to go to, to solving problems. Yeah. It's also important to know which ability you need for what classes because like we said you want to be good at what that class does and while I can't tell you what those are for every class that is a very easy Google search I've done it so many times it's so easy to look up what abilities does this class need? And it's explained to within the text while you're doing it. Yeah, yes. So you are going to want to make sure that you do have enough points to make yourself useful in a certain category that is that is a pinnacle to your character build, your class or your subclass. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to cover a uh, rolled? I think rolling is probably the most popular way to generate your stats. I very much enjoyed it when we did it. The most commonplace, and again, this is the system that is used on DNDB. Beyond, but I do believe this to be the most common way of, of rolling for stats in general is to roll four d6s, die with six sides on them, which are actually just your standard everyday dice, and drop the lowest number and then add up the other three, which would give you that total number. So if you were to do that for every stat, you could either go through, this is how we mentioned the barbarian character in Critical Role Grog, yeah. where instead of rolling for the six numbers and rolling a total of 24 die, right, and then picking and choosing where they going he looked at the first one and he said okay strength and he rolled it and he got pretty high and then he looked at the next one and he said okay dexterity and he rolled it <laughs> and it, you know what i mean and that's how he built that character so rolling for it gives you the opportunity for some really weak characters it gives you the opportunity for some really strong characters yeah. it gives you almost a truly randomized way to go in and create those numbers let's talk about my character 
Because we just we just rolled for mine yeah. a couple days ago. And then ripped it apart. It's a wonderful example of how you can take these outlines of how to do things and say, that's cool, but I'm going to throw it out the window. I'm going to do it my own way. So I think my lowest number was a five. Yes. And I wanted five to. Five and a nine, I think, were the ones that were under 10. Yeah. I think I had some eights in there, too. I, from all of the die that we rolled, all of the numerical values that we got, the lowest was a five and the highest was a 17. And then I looked at Luke and I was like, I want to keep this five. And he goes, okay, like, by all means, take it. Because he was, yes. he was like, use, you can use a different number. And I was like, no, I want to use this five and I'm going to put it under charisma. And he's like, all right. And I was like, I also use that to wager with him. I want this 17 and I want it under dexterity. And he goes, okay. But then I bartered with him some more. And that five became a four. A couple other stats dropped down. And my dexterity 17 turned into an 18, which as a halfling ranger, I get that plus two bonus. So it is a 20, 20. which is insane. Yeah. So I took my system for rolling stats is I actually will have people roll three sets. So I'll take them through either D&D Beyond or in person and say roll 4D4 and drop the lowest for six numbers for six stats. Do that twice more so that you had three groupings of them. So you had a spread. And then in the past, I have for characters of mine just picked what was the middle of those groups so whatever the weakest and the strongest group was overall i've nixed and just taken that that middle road but for you guys in this campaign i actually bartered with you yeah like you're talking about and i'm saying i want you to be good at stuff and i want you to be bad at stuff so let's take and i think i did the highest and the lowest of the three groups and that was kind of our, our starting point as i said put that five in what you want your dump stat to be and then i'll honor that 17 go ahead and throw that in what you want your strongest to be and and kind of started that way with everybody. And then you started the bartering where you said, how do I, I want to get a 20. I want to get a 20 dex. I said, okay, well, you're going to have to take another negative number. I'm going to need another negative modifier out of you, which means I need you to pick another one of these numbers that is under 10. Oftentimes you'll just have like, my character is poor constitution or my character is not very charismatic. And you have the dump stat, the thing that they're not good at. And then everything else is kind of, you know, yeah. average or a little better than average. And then you've got the one thing that's like, ha ha, here's, here's what I'm good at. So I think probably what we're going to get into next is Luke mentioned that he wanted me to have a negative modifier. Yeah, so those total numbers that you roll, that you put in to be the scores for your abilities, then calculate to be a modifier. So that's what we get, the actual number that plus whatever or minus whatever that is going to be applied to a die roll when you try to do those things. So, for instance, a weapon attack that uses strength or dexterity, you're going to add that modifier, how good or bad are you at strength or dex, and how is it's, that is what is assisting you when you're hitting with this weapon weapon. If you're a spellcaster that's using intelligence, per se, for wizards, how intelligent are you? How many are we going to add to this when you try to roll for this spell? What number is it that we're going to add there? To calculate those, it works in multiples of two, based on it being above or under 10. So if you have a score of 10 in any one of these categories, that modifier is going to be a plus zero. If you have a score of 11, that modifier is still going to be a plus zero. Every multiple of two that you get above 10, you get to add one to this modifier. So with a score of 12, you get a plus one. So in the instance of a persuasion check, when it is using charisma, and you are trying to persuade this bartender to give you a free shot or this shopkeep to give you a discount on the magic items that you and your, your party are in there purchasing, your DM will call for, okay, give me a persuasion check to see if you can get a discount. And you will roll that d20 and you will add, with a charisma score of 12, you will add a plus one to whatever that 
that that die roll is. So as you go up from two, you hit 14, you get a plus two, 16, plus three, so on. On the negative side of things, it still works in multiples of two, but it starts at nine. So with a nine and an eight, you get a minus one, a seven and a six, you get a minus two, and so on and so forth. So that is how those roles are calculated and if you are working on a character sheet you will see not only the slot for the number itself but then it'll have an additional little slot there that says the the plus or the minus as well as in the middle row the category that has all of the skills listed it has a section for you to input your bonus so that you can quickly reference okay i rolled for this thing let me find the plus or minus number i have to do to affect it on D beyond there is a little chart underneath that shows you exactly how you got your score yes and it makes for the most part it makes sense it makes sense it's easier to read not an ad for D&D Beyond. <laughs> no, it's it's really not, but that is the resource that we use. It, it has made it very simple for us. Yes, yeah. it has. Yeah, and it kind of takes you through everything step by step. Even if you're the kind of person that would prefer to play a game that you get to sit down with the character sheet in front of you that is a piece of paper and take handwritten notes and all of that, absolutely do that. If you're struggling to go through and fill all of these boxes and do it with just the books, I would suggest going through and seeing what it looks like. It tells you in numbered order. Number one, race. Number two, class. Number three, abilities or whatever it is, right? It just, it goes through through step by step and, mm. and t- takes you through it and then you can transfer all of that onto a sheet of paper and it have more of a sense more of an understanding of what exactly everything means and even if you're not preparing for a campaign it is also a very easy way to just open it up start creating a character yeah. for fun just yeah. to try it out and check it out and it does math for you it does it does the math for it you it does the math for you and that's just so wonderful <laughs> who's here to do math right <laughs> after we just started talking about numbers and plus from 10 and minus from <laughs> yeah. we did a lot of math there for a second D&D Beyond Beyond will do it for you. It does all the math. It's also a good resource for if you're just doing it at home by yourself you know if you yeah. are preparing for a campaign yeah. it's it does it all for you it's very easy it tells you everything it can answer the questions that you for the most part of course the there's flaws part, as yeah. well yeah but um for the most part those questions that it would be nice to have the dm around to help you with yeah it helps you along that path now something that is kind of an afterthought in D beyond and something that i don't like as much actually now that we've bragged on it a little bit is the background yeah comes kind of at the tail end of things beautiful example again about how we're talking about you can create a character from any direction this is something that i actually would probably pick at first when i'm writing or creating a character and a background is going to give you less so abilities and more so attributes that you can call on during play so we can actually go ahead and start with we can do the noble uh, which is off of a character that i had i had played previously which simply states that you come from a noble background and whenever you seek an audience with a noble or need assistance people will recognize that about you innately. So it doesn't exactly give a specific ability or a spell that you can cast, but it does modify a little bit about your character. It's more backstory related. Those do also then give you options to pick proficiencies. That is another way that you can supply from backstory elements what you would be good at or skills that you would rely on more heavily. So taking, for instance, again, the noble, you could say that a noble background would be more educated in the world that you're in. So you could take a proficiency in history because it is something that your character was raised doing, which was studying the history of the world. Another one that I will talk about is going to be Haunted One. Uh, Haunted One is what I'm currently running in Haunted. Your character, yeah. Yeah, Haunted One basically just means 
means that you have something literally like haunting you, be it a bad memory or a shadow or a literal demon. And another important thing about these is I think that they do also influence how NPCs or non-playable characters, just people that you meet that aren't actual other players at the table, perceive you. It helps define your status within the campaign, within the yeah. world. Yeah, it's it's got some good backstory elements into it that then give you a way to practically apply those things in gameplay. Yeah, with Han and One, you just look like you're dead inside. You look decrepit. Your eyes are sunk. You yeah. look like you've been through fucking hell. Yeah, and the people treat you differently based on it. Where like a noble, you walk in and you're in the fancy clothes, and people are, oh, can we? How can we help you? Wait, please give us gold. Or you want an audience? That's their specific ability. If you'd like an audience with a noble person of the town in which you're in, they go, yep, you're, yeah, you look the part. All right, cool. Hold on, we'll go get them. Give us a second. We'll be right back. <laughs> Backgrounds also help give you a starting equipment basis and monetary value. That's kind of your last step really is, okay, we've created this character. Now let's set them out into the world. Well, they can't do it buck naked. <laughs> they, need, they need some armor. They need some weapons, yeah. a backpack full of stuff, uh, some, some money. money. Yeah, so yeah. Ba backgrounds give you the, the money part. If you, like I said, the noble, you're going to have a larger coin purse as you walk into the world than maybe some of the other backgrounds. And then there's systems that give you adventuring packs or dungeoneering pack, right? The stuff that's filled with a tinderbox or oils or rope. Rope. Bed, uh, a bedroll. Bedroll, yeah, stuff like that. Different things to make potions, maybe, depending on your class. Right, you know? depending on your character and what it is that you can you can get a pack or tools, thieves tools, lockpick sets, yeah, stuff like that. As well as your, your weapons, your armor, your clothing, if you've got any scrolls or books or anything on you. One thing that we talk about, the ever-changing process of making a character, right? If I make this character that I want to be really, really good with a glaive or a pole arm or something, well, that's probably not in starting equipment that I can afford based yeah. on my background. So I've got this short sword that I cannot wait to sell to the first merchant that'll take it from me so I can buy a more expensive weapon. And again, not an ad, but D&D Beyond lays it out very easily Does make it pretty easy for you. For you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely does. So at this point, you've got a pretty solid character in front of you. Yeah, so we've pretty much covered all of the mechanics of a character and building a character. Next episode, we're going to be talking about building a character's story and who they are and trying to get into that theatrical aspect of D&D, uh, which not all tables or players are going to be into, not all DMs are going to be into, a lot of them are going to be sitting there, which we mentioned in the first episode. Some games are going to be combat-based, very much just mechanical, this is what I'm doing, this yep. is what I'm doing. Some of them are going to be very role-playing-based, uh, yep. which is personally what I prefer. Yep. I really like getting into character and role-playing so this is next episode is really going to help you kind of break that down and tie it in with the mechanics of building a character that yeah. we just covered we will start with the backstory element yeah. so if that's what appeals to you most and you hear some backstory talk later on and you think i'm going to go back and change my character we we just did that actually i forgot to <laughs> we talk about our, our game a little bit and my enormous blunder of forgetting to tell my players how they should generate their ability scores yeah. before the first game Game. And you get, what did you guys, you just did point by, right? Yeah, we did point by. Yeah, just went through and did some point by. I was like, ah, that's not how I want you to do that. And I totally, I totally messed up and I forgot. So we were actually a session deep into the campaign. And I said, all right, let's, let's everybody sit down now that you have a feel of, okay, you like the rogue? Cool. Let's play the rogue. You like the ranger? Let's play the ranger. You like your race? This kind of, this stuff fits. Awesome. Let's sit down, flush out the backstory and then maybe tweak some of these ability scores. And I had, for the most part, I think I had everybody re-roll with my funky little system and then the bartering tap and then all that. Yeah. But yeah, let's, let's go through 
through. And that was, you know, again, a wonderful example of the weird way that we ended up flushing these characters out, which was actually playing with them with, we'll call them the incorrect scores and having a general idea and then going back through and saying, let's take the backstory. And okay, now some of the, I think every single one of you changed your proficiencies. I didn't. You didn't. I did not. You were, you were the only one then. Because you, you started off by saying, let's change some of these proficiencies. I don't necessarily like this one or this one. And then by the end, I was like, all right, you want to go through proficiencies? And you're like, those actually all make perfect sense now that we've flushed out the backstory. Yeah, I think every every other player at the table looked at them and went, okay, this doesn't make sense now based on what we've talked about. I just kind of generally get, like, everybody wants to pick perception. I think that was one of them where I don't think my character is very perceptive. I said, okay, well, what, what does make sense? Go ahead and move it. So you can tackle it from, from any angle. One of the biggest things I'm going to want to hit next episode is really fleshing out the personality because I think that is something that I have always started with. It's important to me and I think it is a very good and interesting way to attack creating a character. Yeah, you can either have your ability scores and your proficiencies be influenced by your personality or you can go through the process like we did here in this episode and build out the stuff that you might want to play functionally and then think, what does the personality of this kind of character look like? Yeah. Yeah. So, alrighty. Sweet. We shall see you in the next one. Bye.